as we draw near to the end of 2020, it has been uh, quite a year. I wonder uh, what will be the main story of this year. For some people, it may be the societal racial tensions that have marked cities and parts of this country. For others, it'll be the ups and downs, the emotional roller coaster that was the presidential election. Likely for most, not only in our country, but for many people around many nations in the world, it will indeed be the global pandemic. That will be the headline, uh, the narrative that most captures 2020. But more pointed to us, uh, what is the story that's most defining your life? That's most defining the life of the people of God? What narrative is giving most shape to your heart and to your mind and to your life? Most importantly, as a question, is what is the narrative, what is the story that God desires to give shape to his people? As important as those other stories may be, there are many stories being told vying for our attention, vying for our identity, our purpose in life. Yet we come to this week, we come to Christmas, and we come to the Christmas story. We've been singing about it this morning. We come to the gospel story, which is the story that ought to be occupying and consuming the believer and the Christian church through all seasons of life. In fact, this story ought to be the one that is shaping our identity, uh, defining our purpose in life, uh, transforming the character of the people of God. It's the story that is to be filling us with joy and hope. And so we turn to that story uh, this morning this Christmas week from John's Gospel. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. What one commentator called the pearl within John's Gospel, this prologue and opening of the Gospel of John. John 1, 1 through 18. Listen now to God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it or understood it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him 
and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. John's opening words here uh, speak into some of the most uh, profound questions that scholars and philosophers and scientists have asked throughout the ages that they continue to ask. Is there something beyond the material world? Or are we living in a closed system? How did the world begin? Did it have a beginning? Is there a God? Can this God be known? If so, what is this God like? All of those questions John speaks into here in just these first 18 verses of his gospel. They're not only profoundly theological words, but radically personal words. As he said in verse 12 or 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become his own children, children of God. John tells us uh, the very purpose for why he's writing this gospel. And he tells us that purpose toward the end in chapter 20, verse 30. He said this, Jesus did many signs in the presence of the disciples, not written in this book, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John writes with a very clear purpose here, that people would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and as a result of believing, have life in him. And that's precisely what he writes here in the opening verses. To those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So life, according to John, rests upon believing, and believing rests upon receiving him. This is the story of Christmas. This is God's great visitation into the creation he has made. But who will receive him? Who will make space for him? It's one thing for him to come. It's another for there to be space made. This is what we sing in in the hymns and the carols this time of year. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Well, what space, what room in my life is the Lord Jesus Christ occupying? Whatever room he occupies, it produces life. Life begins to flourish. That's where John is leading us, to receive, to believe that we would have life. But where does John begin? That's where he's leading us, but where does he begin? Unlike Matthew and Luke, who give us the birth stories, the birth narratives of the four Gospels, when we think of Christmas, our minds naturally will go to the birth stories of Jesus, John begins at a time long, long before. And not only a time long before, but really a different realm. 
And he begins with these three very familiar words. In the beginning. In the beginning. Now those are not only very bold and audacious words, but those are the words you only hear from someone who's either about to tell you a fictional story or someone who's about to make a very bold claim and statement. John, of course, is in the latter. In the beginning. It reads like a story. It reads like a narrative. And any first century Jew or 21st century believer today, when hearing those words, know that they are likely hearing something very familiar. In the beginning. John's bringing us back to the opening words of the Bible. In the beginning. But, of course, we know the way the story is supposed to go and what we read in the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No doubt John is making the connection and wants his readers and hearers to make the connection. That's a powerful statement to say what it is that happened in the beginning. Genesis 1.1. The emphasis is certainly upon the creative work that God uh, made. He created all things, the heavens and the earth, all things visible and invisible. But it's a whole other thing to say who or what was already there in the beginning. Certainly, Moses writing the first books of the scriptures, inspired by the Spirit, is telling us that God is there. In the beginning, God, and he creates. But there's an emphasis upon the work that is done. That's a creation that's taking place. John here is very much emphasizing who or what is already there in the beginning. So John's kind of pulling back the curtain here to bring us into another time and space or another realm, we might even say, before creation itself. He wants to show us the very nature of God. So he opens and he says, In the beginning was the Word. Notice in your Bible that the English word for word is capitalized, most likely. And it's actually the only place in John's gospel, these opening verses, where the word word is used in a Christological or a Christ-centered way, referring to Christ himself. In the beginning was the word. He already was. And then we read the word was with God. Very important. This word or this person, as John Calvin noted, is distinct from God, but is one with God. He's with God in the beginning. A remarkable concept. Now you have community or fellowship between God and the word. Before creation exists, there is fellowship, there is community. The word is with God before creation And if there's any doubt about the divinity of this person, John says, and the word was God. This word is divine. And he's not only divine, he's also the creator in verse 3. All things were made through him. 
Without him was not anything made that was made. All things were made through him. Every drop of rain, every flake of snow, every child that is born, in a way, it moves through the mind and through the fingertips, if you will, of Almighty God. All things are made through him. And we're beginning to see the nature and character of this God. This is a God who loves to create. This is a God who loves to commune and to communicate. This is the nature of of God's relationship to his people throughout the Old Testament. He calls a people and he constantly is engaging and interacting with his people. He loves to do this. It's a part of his character. This is why it is telling that Christ here is referred to as the Word. In Greek, logos. John Calvin defines logos, or word here, as, quote, the wisdom and will of God, the express image of his purpose. We might say the word is the self-expression of God. Because what do words do except uh, express the inward thoughts of the mind? If you want to know the mind of God or the purpose of God or the character of God, it's expressed in this word. He's the message of God. We might say he's the expressed language of God. And you and I are living in a day in which we are uh, inundated with messages, words. They come at us every day, all day. Advertisements, news stories, headlines, letters, mail, And so many of these messages have such little value. We have whole categories where we put some of this mail, whether it's our email that goes in the trash at times. Uh, It's an advertisement. It does not have much worth to us. Or uh, the mail that comes in through the mailbox. And uh, we we call it junk mail. It has no value. This is also a time of year, though, of course, that... People are writing personal letters, sending cards, giving updates. I've read some of yours already. The end of year story capturing uh, your family uh, from the past year. And, uh, and so we, we sort through the mail. And we hang on to those words and those letters and those things that have a value to us. And, and John here has got a word, a message worth hanging on to, worth receiving, worth understanding. It's not only a message, this word is a person. In the beginning was the word, verse 4, and in him was life. So this word is a person, this person brings two things, which are two themes that run through John's gospel, life and light. Uh, Familiar words may come to our minds through uh, John's gospel from Jesus himself. I am the light of the world. Or I have come that they might have life and have it fully, abundantly. But the life that he contains, that he imparts to people, is not just a physical life. That's the word bios, where we get biology. Physical life. John uses a different word in speaking about the life that Jesus brings. It's the word zoe. This is deep, meaningful life. It's the joyful, peaceful, thankful, 
meaningful life. And how many are the things that people are pursuing or living for to obtain that kind of deeper life? It may be health. As long as I'm healthy, I'll have life. As long as I'm financially secure, I'll have life. As long as I'm safe, I'll have life. As long as I still have opportunity to pursue my personal dreams, I'll I'll have life. Many are the things pulling to seek to offer life. And yet it's only through Christ, according to John, that this life is imparted, this deeper, fuller life. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says this. He says, it is like that here. The terrible thing... The almost impossible thing is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions to Christ. But it's far easier than what we are all trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do is to remain what we call ourselves, to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life, and yet at the same time be good. We're all trying to let our mind and heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition, and hoping in spite of this to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. That is exactly what Christ warned us you could not do. As he said, a thistle cannot produce figs. If I'm a field that contains nothing but grass seed, I cannot produce wheat. Cutting the grass may keep it short, but I shall still produce grass and no wheat. If I want to produce wheat, the change must go deeper than the surface. I must be plowed up and re-sown. That is the work that Christ comes to do in people's lives. To plow up and to re-sow. And he's doing that not only in human lives, but in all of creation. That's what the 8th chapter of Romans is very, very much about. The work of God recreating and restoring. And the reason Jesus comes tells us the desperation of the state of the world. He's the light and he shines, but he shines where? In the darkness. He comes to shine in the darkness. This is what we hear from the prophet Isaiah. The people, they walked in darkness and they've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And that's where the attention is given. That's how John comes and turns attention here in verse 6 upon preparing people for the coming of this word, this light and this life that is coming. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. You read through these opening verses and it almost appears that uh, the, the attention is now given to John and taken away from Christ, but it's actually the opposite. The focus on John the Baptist and preparing the way is only intensifying and magnifying the focus upon the coming of the word. Remember in Matthew's gospel, the way that John is used, he he comes in the words of Isaiah, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And here John comes as a witness to bear witness. That is, he not only is a witness himself, he not only sees Christ, 
which he will speak about in his first epistle, the Apostle John. We, we touched him, we saw him. But he comes to bear witness, John the Baptist. He comes to point other people to this light that is coming. In essence, he's laying down the carpet, calling attention to all who is coming. And why does he do this in verse 7? That all may believe in him. It's not only surprising that the God of all creation would come in this state of humiliation and take on flesh and leave the glories of heaven in order to dwell among man, even to bear the cross. It's further surprising that not all would receive the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of us who follow him and worship him and call him our Lord and Savior, this this gentle Savior this loving master, this person who comes in truth and righteousness, that all would not receive him is perhaps surprising. But most surprising to me is how John describes the barrier to man's reception and belief in the Lord Jesus. It comes a couple of chapters later in chapter 3. Uh, this is the, the great chapter on that God so loved the world, he gave his son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have life everlasting. This is the chapter in which Jesus teaches you must be born again. And then you come to verse 19, a kind of summary statement. And this is what John says. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness. Rather than the light because their works were evil. I would have never thought that love is the barrier to people rejecting uh, or not receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is. They loved the darkness rather than the light. It's not a lack of love that is man's great problem. People have love for many things. The problem is the object of his love what it is he delights in, what it is he loves. He naturally loves the darkness. So that when God looks out upon the sea of humanity, what distinguishes one person from another, one people from another, is not first a difference in their behavior. That some are more decent and contribute to the world, others are more inclined to misbehave and serve themselves before others. First, what distinguishes them is the heart, what it is that they love. They did not receive him because they loved the darkness. And God is in the work of reordering what we love. That's what he does in the work of regeneration, replacing that heart of stone with a heart of flesh, replacing and reordering what we desire and what we cherish. And this newfound, newly directed love comes by receiving and believing in Christ, being born anew. Notice in verse 13, being born of God, not the result of our own will or our parents' will, but the will of God, being born of God. This word, eternally existing, loves to create. Through him all things were made. He loves to communicate. He is the message. 
in the expression of God. And he loves to commune. Verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, our eternal God, takes on flesh, born a man to be the redeemer of man. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase from the message puts verse 14 this way. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. As much as anything, Christmas reminds us that God is not distant or unknowable or far removed. He's drawn near. He's moved into the neighborhood. He's rolled up his sleeves in a way. And he's come into our world. And he's come to give. He comes bearing gifts for the people of God. Verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. That word fullness, it means the sum total of all that God is. All that is in God. It's the same word used in Colossians 1, the great chapter on the supremacy of Christ and his character. Colossians 1.19, For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This Christmas, many gifts will be purchased, wrapped, opened, given. But there is no gift that can satisfy the human heart and soul like that of the Lord Jesus Christ and life in Him. Many things can be said about the Christian faith and the gospel, but what cannot be said is that God is indifferent to this world or to people or to suffering or to our lives. He has come. He has entered in. He has taken the divine initiative and he has taken upon himself our sin and our shame. To those who would receive him, to those who would believe in his name. Perhaps this morning it is hope uh, that you need most. Maybe tomorrow looks bleak or looks dark. I think today or tomorrow is the shortest day of the year. Draw near to this one who has drawn near to you. He is not far off. He has made himself known in this word. Perhaps this morning it's a reordering of your loves that you need most. Ask, Ask the Lord. Look to God. Pray to God that he would reorder what you love in your life. Ask the Lord to plow up, to re-sow a heart with love for him. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, how we thank you for the richness and the depth of your word. Your word, uh, inscripturated, written, preserved for us. And then that, that, that eternal word, your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, how we praise you that you have revealed your word, revealed him to us, that we would know who you are most clearly. We give you praise as our God, the one who is our chief shepherd, guiding guiding us in life and in light, and indeed the good shepherd, giving yourself for us that we might have this life. We pray, O Lord, that you 
have not left us as we are, but you've entered in. And we pray, Father, that you would grant us the sufficient grace, Lord, to walk faithfully after you, to love you above all else, and then to love one another as you have loved us. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to fellowship and commune with your people in whatever trials we may endure and experience, that we would know your divine presence from your word, from your spirit, and Lord, as we participate in this communion meal together, remembering, fellowshipping with and celebrating all that we have in Jesus Christ. For this we pray in his name. Amen.